Hey everyone, this is my brother Michael. My brother Adam. We're the Sharp Brothers. You're listening to Mentoring for the Modern Musician. Hey everyone. Hey everyone, welcome back. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back to Mentoring, Mentoring for, for the Modern Musician. Musician. Today. We are so excited. You have no idea. Oh my God. I hope you read the notes. Did A&R. you read the notes? Did you guys read the show notes? Icon. There are some people in the industry. Sign Metallica. Yeah, okay, you just cut it. Everything. I had to. It's, I, but I, you didn't I, let do, me build. How could I not? But you didn't let I no, gotta build. There's no build. You got to let me no, build. No, no build. I was going to go, you know, sometimes in the music industry, <laughs> there's somebody who's really important that when you're looking at the history books. He signed Metallica. The, I'm still not done. <laughs> <laughs> when you're looking at the history books. He signed whole, Metallica. <laughs> there's a whole chapter on him. It's Michael Alago. Alago. So The man. The man. The myth. Amazing, Legend. amazing story. This is definitely, okay, a first for many reasons for us, but not the least of which, this is the first person we've had on the podcast who we did our some of our research. By watching a movie about him. By watching <laughs> the movie about him that's on Netflix right now. Exactly. Right? Not like, oh, you can Google it and it'll end up on YouTube. And and it's on, no, this is like a full-blown... Like, this is a Netflix movie. Exactly. Hey, did you see that, that movie on Netflix? Yeah. I interviewed him. We just interviewed him. Yeah, we just, you know. Yeah, right. So Signed Metallica. <laughs> so, not, I know Michael keeps saying that a lot, but um, that was not all Michael Olago did. No, he did many, 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 Phenomenal. many other things. So, after the podcast, go watch the movie, too. Yes. I mean, just... You have to. Just phenomenal. Absolutely. Um, but So, this is live from the uh, the Berkeley uh, College of Music campus. With with our our friend Ralph Jacketing, who's yeah. a brilliant manager and brilliant manager professor and he, there. Yes, he he's, he pre, he professes <laughs> he professes music, to be music a manager. business management allegedly <laughs> allegedly Ralph's a man. No, so it, it just a no phenomenal a, manager, phenomenal ph- guy, phenomenal guy. Invited us to come in and, and interview a legend, a legend. And and Michael is as as fun to be around and as cool a dude as you would yeah. hope he would be. As fun as it sounds. It's that fun. It's, it, it may be more fun. It probably is more maybe fun. Maybe more fun. Absolutely. We did, we, you know, this, we, we kept some stories to ourselves. We did keep some stories to we ourselves. Gotta, we got to get something Absolutely. that we know that you don't. <laughs> Always. But so here you guys. We will teach you everything you know, but not everything <laughs> we know. Uh, yes. <laughs> so uh, grab whatever it is you're, you're, you're snacking on or, or drinking. Get a beverage. Get a beverage and uh, strap in. Strap in. This is a great one. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen. Michael Lago, thank yes. you so much for... Being on uh, Mentoring for the Modern Musician. Thank you for having me. I totally appreciate it. We are so thrilled that that we got the opportunity to come down and talk to you here at Berkeley. Uh Yes, yeah. So nobody uh, listening will be able to see this, but we're actually live at Berkeley. So you guys can clap or do something. That's, that's either buzz. the best clap track ever, or it's an actual live. You can so. keep it and for everybody they're, they're, they're else now and use it. Now we have it. We have it sampled. Perfect. Exactly. Snip, snip, snip. So, for anybody who has not heard of uh, Michael Lago, you uh, have Netflix. So go to Netflix and watch the movie about you, which is called. Are we allowed to say the Oh, yeah, do it. Who the yeah, fuck do it. is that guy? Well, there's a, mo- there's a documentary about me on Netflix called Who the Fuck is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. And it's about my life in and outside of the music business. Um, I was an A&R executive for 24 years. If you don't know what A&R means, uh, artist and repertoire, uh, I believe it's the most important part of a record company. It is the backbone of a record company. If you don't have great records, then the record company 
has nothing great to sell. Um, so that's what I did for 24 years. And I worked with uh, a wildly diverse group of artists from Metallica to Cyndi Lauper to Nina Simone to Rob Zombie. And I really do love all kinds of music. And it was my dream job as a little kid growing up in Brooklyn that um, I had no plan B. My plan A was always music. That was just it, music. And you know, when you're 15, you don't really know what that means. Um, but I knew it had to just be in music. I'm sorry to repeat myself. Uh, but you know, so uh, when I was growing up in Brooklyn, I would watch all these music shows on TV. Dick Clark's American Bandstand, Don Cornelius' Soul Train. Uh, if you were allowed to stay up late at night, there was something called Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And what all those shows did for me was it informed my listening because you could hear everything from Aretha Franklin to a top 40 band to someone in hard rock and heavy metal. And at an early age, I knew that I just liked a lot of different forms of music. Um, so I don't know if you want me to continue, because I'm on the roll. <laughs> you do, do you have another you do, question well, yet? We have so many questions. But, okay, so, so since I'm on a roll, um, <laughs> I'll make it quick, maybe. So, you know, I knew I always wanted to be in music. I didn't know what that actually meant, so I watched these television shows. Um, so we're going to fast forward. I'm 19 years old then, and I go to the School of Visual Arts in New York, and I work part-time in a pharmacy. And uh, one day I was walking down a street on East 11th Street. I saw a beautiful Art Deco building, and I went, wow, this is really beautiful. But it had a sign outside, and it said Video Club Opening. Now, keep in mind, it's 1980, and it's the beginning of MTV. And I just thought, well, this sounds interesting. So I opened up the door, I went inside, and I saw what a beautiful Art Deco 1920s concert hall this was. There was a man in the balcony, and he was like, kid, what do you want? We're not open. And I was like, well, it says outside you're hiring people. He goes, do you have a resume? I said, I don't have a resume. I have no idea what you're talking about. And, uh, but I want a job in the music business. And uh, he thought that was rather funny. And uh, so he called me up to his office. And, you know, in music, people talk about the art of the pitch and how to pitch somebody and how to do it right and how definitely not to do it. Um, so I didn't even realize at 19 I was giving this guy a pitch about what I wanted to do. So we start talking about music and I start talking to him about all different kinds of music from the great American songbook, you know, music from the 20s and the 30s and the 40s to top 40 music to hard rock and heavy metal. And he just took a liking to me and he said, I'm going to give you a job. You're going to open my mail you're going to answer my phone, and you're going to get my lunch. And I thought, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> but, you know, little did I know, that truly was the beginning of my trajectory moving forward. So in those three years uh, that I worked there, I listened to all his phone calls very intensely. It was a concert venue that held 1,500 people. And what his job was to make sure that most nights these evenings were sold out. So I've always been very curious. I've always been like a sponge absorbing things. So then, like I said, I listened to a lot of his phone calls. And at one point in time, he handed over the reins to me to start talking to booking agents on the phone. And, you know, 
when you're speaking to booking agents on the phone, you're talking to them about how to, how to sell out this room. What are we charging for tickets? Um, where, what's the break-even point? Uh, what does the artist, what is requ requested in the artist rider? When does the, the house make money? So all this stuff. And that was one of the first things that I learned how to do. Um, and then who was that, that that owned that owned that club? That was the Ritz, right? Yeah, there were two brothers that owned the Leibowitz brothers owned the the, the building then. But Jerry Brandt, Jerry Brandt was a an entrepreneur. He was one of the first people, I believe, to uh, bring the Rolling Stones to the United States when he worked at the William Morris Agency. He also managed a singer songwriter named Carly Simon. Just, uh, Excuse me. Not just Carlos. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, the voices of East Harlem. He was this entrepreneur, and oh, he ran this nightclub in the '60s, a famous nightclub called the Electric Circus. Yeah. 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 Um, they had this thing called the Joshua Light Show there, and everybody from I don't know, like Jimi Hendrix, would come and yeah. hang out there and wow. perform like at three o'clock in the morning. Um, so this is the man who I worked with, and I didn't even know really what his history was. Right. So I worked there for three years. I don't know, I felt a little antsy, and um, I had a friend named Mitchell, and his dad was going to revive the record company Electra Records. Electra Records was a very popular label. At some point, the previous management just ran it into the ground, and uh, there was talk that David Geffen uh, would come and take over Electra. But instead, Bob left Warner Brothers, Bob Krasnow, and became the CEO of Electra. Mitchell told his dad about me. Jerry Brandt said, I don't want to lose you, but if you want to move on, I'd be very helpful and make a call to Bob Krasnow as well. So I was a nervous wreck. Um, I finally got, was getting an interview at a record company. And um, I met with this gentleman, this CEO, and I had almost the same exact conversation with him that I had with Jerry and talking about all types of music. Added to that, Bob was a great lover of art, paintings, sculptures, uh, collage work, and I loved a lot of street art and graffiti, so there was another level of our conversation. So, you know, I don't know, my time was up with him, 45 minutes in, shook hands, and he said, uh, you'll be hearing from one of us. And about two weeks later, his uh, uh, corporate as assistant called and said, you have a job at Electra Records. Mm. So now, I'm totally excited. He says, you're going to be in the A&R department, and I have no idea what an A&R person does. So um, Bob, again, took me, he, was, he had to run a company, but he took me under his wing. We talked a lot about artists, how to talk to artists, how to uh, make records, how to put budgets together. What he couldn't do, meaning he couldn't meet with every manager, every lawyer, every independent artist, so he just threw everybody my way. I was overwhelmed, but it was like, uh, I always say, it's like on-the-job training, and I learned fast. I learned fast because I had to learn fast. So that's, I don't know, that's the beginning of my career. You, how old were you at this point? Uh, I think I was uh, 21. Was you 20? 22. 21, 22, yeah. and you now are an A&R executive for Electra. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, wow. no pressure or anything. Were all of the signings you had successful? Like, was the first <sighs> signing you had at Electra successful? No. Um, my first signing, I decided to sign some friends of mine. 
Not a good idea. <laughs> um, they were really cool young people from Red Bank, New Jersey. They were called Shrapnel. They were hardworking. So I made a five-song EP with them. Um, Vince Ely from the Psychedelic Furs co-produced that record. It did okay at college radio. But, um, you know, what I learned was that it was just good. Good's not great. And they did not have what people like to call that it factor. That, that thing that makes somebody so wildly charismatic that you, want to, you have to walk up to them. You have to shake their hand. You have to talk to them. That was my first signing. It was a huge failure. I was a nervous wreck. I thought, oh no, Bob's going to fire me that now. <laughs> but, you know, he understood that I was getting my feet wet, yeah, basically. Right, right, yeah. mm -hmm. right. And it was really baptism by fire anyway. That's so correct. You're learning this all as you go. So your next signing then. <laughs> well, there's a whole big backstory, but my next signing was Metallica. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're, again, you're 21, 22? Mm, 22. 20, yeah, 20, so you're 22. 22, 23, yeah. And, and through a series of events, you yes. heard the tape Oh, there's so many, there was a confluence of things happening. You know, my ear was to the ground with hard rock and heavy metal. At that point in time, in 1983, kids were handing out cassettes of all their favorite bands, cassettes of their homemade demos, um, Xerox black and white cut and paste collaged flyers saying, this is my band, come and see me. And at one point, this little cassette was going around of Metallica and also... They did sign to a little label called Megaforce, and Megaforce put out a record called Kill Em All. Uh, but Megaforce didn't have the funds to market and promote these young people. So um, when I heard Kill Em All, I thought it was the greatest thing I ever heard, honestly. Um, it didn't sound like any hard rock, any top 40, any heavy metal that I had ever heard before. Uh, these young people were combining all these influences from hard rock, heavy metal, speed metal, punk rock, uh, British artists, into this thing that made them so unique from the get-go. And, uh, you know, fast forward a bit, at some point, uh, I knew I had to get them out of this little contract of theirs on Megaforce. I did. Um, I didn't personally. That's what business affairs is for. So Megaforce had their own lawyer. We had our own business affairs department at Electra, and they did their arguing and their <laughs> magic and to make it happen. It was really, you know, sort of a signing that changed the face of hard rock and heavy metal. Yeah. And after that, everybody wanted their own Metallica. Right. But, you know, that right. doesn't really happen. No, <laughs> no, right. Go get me a Metallica. Yeah. There, there was only Yeah, there's only one. No, band I mean there's extraordinary it. bands out there, but for me there was just Metallica. So I do want to back up just a little bit because we sort of we brushed over it. You you mentioned early on how very early on in your life you went, I'm going to be in music. That's what I want to do. But one of the things that we didn't talk about was what that meant you did in preparation to be that 19-year-old kid that would walk into the Ritz and ask for a job. Your life was music in New York in the late 70s, right? Yes, yes, late 70s, early 80s. Um, I guess you could say I'm in Catholic all-boys high school, and for some reason my mom let me go out every night. I, I, I guess part of it was because I did well in school, 
And she really did feel that I had this passion and this calling. So I was out all the time. I was visiting nightclubs like CBGB and Max's Kansas City. And, uh, you know, I'd get on the train late at night from Brooklyn to the city. You know, my little 15-year-old self with a knapsack and my camera. <laughs> and I would go hear music, wow. you know. Yeah. And they, and All they, types of music. And they let you in. Well, it was New York back in the 80s was a very different New York. They didn't card you. Um, but a lot of clubs who, like, knew you from wanting to always come there, they would always say, we don't want to see you with any alcohol. Yeah, you, you start drinking here. Two weeks suspension. So, you know, we all drank everything we could before we before entered we the premises. Right. And then yeah. we would have a, a wild old time. Yeah. yeah. But, so, but that really, you were already doing the groundwork. Cool. I guess I didn't know that. I was just a fan. Yeah. I was a fan who loved music. I was passionate about music. Like I have said in many interviews, and maybe I even we talked about this early, I didn't have a plan B. And now I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but it worked for me. I didn't, I didn't know what, like, what else is there except music. So, right. And that's, yeah. you know, this is why Ralph also asked me to come here. Yeah. Uh, our, our fearless leader, <laughs> professor. Exactly. That's why you're here interviewing me, because I didn't have a plan B, and I could say that I was wildly successful in my career. And worked your ass off. Yes, it's very hard work. You right. know, uh, A&R, um, there are A&R people at every record company. And, you know, at one point, somebody else wants that same act. Yeah. So one has to wine and dine these people and let them know why Electra would be the best home for them. And to put perspective on that yes. for anybody who is thinking about, like, how much am I going to have to work if I'm in the music industry? What kind of, like, how many hours a week? What kind of schedule did what you have? What kind of schedule did you have? I had, you know, well, I had an insane schedule. I would get to my office usually if I wasn't hungover. I would get there about 10 in the morning, okay. and I'd leave 6, 7 o'clock at night, go home, get myself together, have dinner, and then head back out to the clubs. And be out until? The wee hours. Until yeah, yeah. taking, you know, the local train back home took me, you know, forever to get back to <laughs> Brooklyn. Yeah. And, right. and, and, and this is... Five nights a week? Oh, I don't know. I just, I just, all I know just is I went out all the all time. All the time it was, yeah, really. It was, that was, that was the life. So yes, that, of course. that is yeah. your life. Your life is 100% that. Music. I, yeah. Going out. I, I, hearing bands. Seeing people live. Yes. And I, I want to make a point about that and sort of say that out loud and put an exclamation point at the end of it because I think it's important for young artists, whether they're an, an artist and a guitar player or they're in a band or they're a singer-songwriter or they're a manager or they're a booking agent. That's what kind of commitment it takes. That's what kind of dedication it takes. That's what kind of time it takes. Well, listen, everybody's in a band. <laughs> Everybody, of course, wants to be successful. Everybody thinks that they're the next big thing. Yeah. And it just, um, it just doesn't happen that way. But... If you are serious about being in a band or being in the music business, it has to be 100%, especially for bands, because if you're not that dedicated to your craft and about performing live and making excellent music, there's a line, there's a really long line. Right. And I experienced that line for 25 years because kids came to see me every day. Lovely people. Some things were rotten. Some things were very good. But very good is not great. And you can't just sign very good because I'd be up to the ceiling in artists. And you just can't have everything in your life anyway. I couldn't have... <laughs> no, you know, it's just no, the way great, of the world. No, exactly. And I couldn't have every artist because you couldn't function as a record label. Right. Yeah. So I felt like I had this thing that I knew great when I saw it, when I heard it, 
when I shook its hand, when I had these conversations with young people, or maybe sometimes not so young people, and I knew, like for instance, when I talked to Rob Zombie, I heard one riff of a song of White Zombie, and I lost my mind, and I said, <laughs> you know what, I'm gonna sign you. And he said to me, I'm gonna be big, and I'm gonna make movies. And I took him at his word 100% because I felt that from him. He was no nonsense, and he had drive, and he had charm, if you want to say Rob Zombie's charming, but he did. No, he had <laughs> no, charm, absolutely. absolutely, and uh, he knew what he wanted to do, and that's the kind of person I wanted to be involved with, somebody who knew what they wanted to do, and as a corp being part of a corporation, if I could do that, I wanted to help him realize his dream, and I did, you know, along with other people at the record company who were in marketing, in uh, publicity in radio promotion, you know. Yeah, but so the the people that you signed though, it. I love that you make this distinction between really good and great. Yes, and and we did sort of talk a little earlier about that. That great can be subjective. So some it is, people it is subjective that some people can think something's great and and you don't or you know I might think something's great and you might not or mm -hmm. you might think something's great and I might not but that the it factor the work that they put in and that that Well you could be you could put a lot of work in and still only be good. Right. right but when right. one talks I think I I think we talked a little about the it factor and the it factor being that person who you want to walk up to, yeah. who you want to shake their hand, who you go see them live and it's it wows you because they know how to relate to the audience. And if they're relating to the audience in that special way and the audience is giving that energy back to them. Yeah. It says something about who they are up there. Or right. He or she is up there. That's who. That's who you're. That's the kind of. That's yes, those are the people that, uh, that I want to be involved with. Yeah. You know, I want to yeah. be involved with people who are different, who are so different that it makes the difference in the musical landscape of everything that's out there. Right. 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 I almost lost myself there for a minute, but <laughs> so we'll bring you back. We'll bring you back. <sighs> All right. We're yes. Back. We're right back. <laughs> yes. So. You're, you're the, the kind of music that really speaks to you, spoke to you, and continues to speak to you is 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 hard rock, heavy metal, um, that kind of thing. Sure, but it's not all that you've done. So no, not at all. Uh, you know, I could be making a uh, Metallica record, and then our chairman comes into the office and says, "I just signed this girl named Tracy Chapman, and she's yours." And I was like, uh, Okay, and uh, so what that meant was I introduced myself to her, her manager. They told me they had already just started a record with a producer named David Kirschenbaum. So then my job really was I knew that all the songs were there. So I'd come into the studio just to give it a listen, offer some tips here and there. When it was done, um, I was there for the mixing of the album. I helped master the record, and I got involved with something I should not have got involved <laughs> with because it wasn't my business to be in the art department. But I kind of felt like I know what this record sounds and looks like, and I'm just going to put the whole package together to the dismay of the people in the art department because I was doing their job, but I really didn't care. Um, I was that person that if I wanted to get something done and I felt like I was correct in doing it, I did it. I saw an illustration in Time magazine from an artist photographer named Matt Mahurin, and it had this picture had this really 
beautiful atmospheric feeling. So I played him five, I called him up, I played him five songs. He said, I know what I'm going to do with her. And he made this beautiful, quiet portrait. It's kind of sepia toned, if you never saw it. And it's just of her head to the side. And it embodied every single Absolutely. song yeah. that's on that record. Yeah, it looks that's like an iconic what it record like. cover yeah. and an iconic album. Yeah. Yeah, for a debut record, unbelievable. Yes, yeah. and so that's anybody who isn't familiar with Tracy Chapman, please. Yeah, pause, pause the podcast and go Google cool. Tracy Chapman, and at least listen to Fast Car. Absolutely, and look at the album cover. The album mm -hmm. cover, and, know and then you'll, you'll, you'll know what we're talking about. So yes, I you know uh, my passion is hard rock and heavy metal. I love that sound. The noisier, the better right, for right. me. I want my ears to bleed. Um, but like I said, I could be making Metallica record. I could make Tracy Chapman record. Uh, sometimes I was making a record with John Lydon from the Sex Pistols, and another time, at that same time, I could be making a record with Michael Feinstein, who performs the Great American Songbook with wow. symphonies. Yeah. And that was because I, at an early age, I trained my ear to hear everything. Yeah, those and early shows. All that you were of that about. crept into when yeah. I started making records with a diverse group of people. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and again, I love listening to your story. That, uh, again, I think one of the things that we talk about obnoxiously a lot is authenticity. Yeah. Authenticity is absolutely everything. That there are no great artists who are not who have any staying power that are not an authentic. Like, and so all the artists you're talking about that you're working with, either that you pluck out um, or that you are are put together assigned to work with, with or you're assigned yeah. to, they're all you can you can. Just, again, Google the image, and you go, oh, right, I remember what that record sounds like. I remember who that artist is. Sure. It's authentic, but it also, what strikes me in watching the, the movie with you and listening to you uh, talk is your authenticity. Yeah. Is you being... Absolutely. The, you have no pretense about who you are or what you're doing or what's... This is the deal. Well, like, I find that in life on a personal level, on a professional level, if you don't tell the truth, then what do you got? <laughs> then you have to backtrack, and you have to make <laughs> stuff up. So I always find that when one tells the truth, that automatically breaks down so many barriers. Right. And, uh, you know, in speaking to artists and telling them the truth, you know, I could tell an artist the truth and say, you know what, your album's not here yet. You're two songs short. They may not like hearing that because right. I want to go into the studio tomorrow. Right, right. But you know what? I'm here in telling you the truth. That helps you work harder, yeah. think more. What is Michael talking about? What are these two songs that are necessary to complete this record? And we, we go banter back and forth about what the song should be about. Should it be up-tempo? Should it not? Do you have too many of those already on the record? So go home, think about what we've just said, and come back with those songs. And sometimes it takes five, six, seven, eight songs, but within that, there are those two songs, and that's what we needed, and now we can make a record. That's a part of the sort of the inner workings of the industry that I think people do not understand. They have these images that they see a picture of, they see a video of Metallica, and they think that Metallica just sort of grew out of wherever their practice space was, and they just went on the road and became this huge thing well, without that, ever talking about it or, or having any input or having anybody help them. 
grow well, into who they are. Yes, but they're a very special animal. Yeah, well. uh, there's nobody like them. And, you know, if you like hard rock and heavy metal, you, you know, and you listen to things like Megadeth and Slayer and Creator and uh, all of those bands, you know, Metallica really, they were the cream of the crop. They were top of the heap, as they say. Yeah. And, you know, when I met them, and we were all in our 20s, they knew what they wanted to do. They were very clear and focused about the, the overall sound and their dedication. Yeah, yeah. And another, they were the other band, like Rob Zombie, I bought into that. And they've never disappointed me. And I don't think they've disappointed the people out there. Oh, no, and absolutely. Because they've stayed true to themselves, whether you like all of those records or not, right, right. that's the truth. And that's why 35 years later, yeah. they're still playing stadiums because they always told the truth. Yeah. And it sounds to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it sounds to me like they were interested in growing. They were interested in getting better. Yes. They, they, they right? didn't want to stay in a garage. They had big dreams. Yes. Lars, their drummer, whether you like him or not, he's fabulous. Yeah. Him and James, they had big dreams. Yeah. And their dreams got realized because they were dedicated to their craft. And they knew when somebody like myself came along, yeah. I could help elevate them to that next level. Because now they were going to be on a major label. And um, at, at a major label, I could have that label spend tons of money on them. And because a band like Metallica in the early days were not getting radio airplay, how, what do you do with these people? Well, we already know they're extraordinary live they're so exciting live here's a bunch of money for one year and go on the road and luck would have it that somewhere on the road Ozzy Osbourne saw them and his he you know Sharon his wife does everything she <laughs> called me at Electra and she said we love your band we want to take Metallica out on the road with Ozzy and you know this now what happens now is Metallica goes from playing 1,000 seat venues that they can sell out now they're on the road with Ozzy, and they're playing 18,000-seaters. And they were the talk of the town then. So people definitely got to Madison Square Garden, all of these major arenas, early enough to see the opening act. Which sometimes that doesn't happen. People can care less about an opening act. They just want to see the headliner. But in this case, the energy, the talk of the town, what was happening in the music business was everyone was talking about Metallica. And that was a blessing that we got to go on that, uh, on that tour with Ozzy because it broke things wide open oh, for them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and so coming into their third record by then, Master of Puppets, uh, out of the box, it went gold, which means it sold a half a million. And then after that, at that point, when that third record came out, it wound up being their biggest record at the time. And, you know, it just continues to sell to this day. Such a great record. Yeah. Well, and again, I, I love listening to you talk about acts like Metallica, like Rob Zombie, Rob Zombie in particular, that what is special about them that, that people connect with, that you connected with, and knew people were going to connect with, was this authenticity, this truthfulness sure. about who they were. And that it wasn't an accident, that it was something that they... You know, they didn't by accident have the kind of hair they had. They there's there's a reason no, they weren't was, Cinderella. Correct. Right? Which, I think yeah. it was all like um, not pre-planned or because they certainly weren't like a pre-packaged no, band. No, 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 no. It's right. just that was Rob's look. That was his feeling. That was his attitude, and he always knew who he was. Right. We didn't have to find. Well, is there a Rob Zombie no, right, in there? Right, right, exactly. He almost came like the full package already. Right, and right. I bought into that package because. Yeah. 
I just loved him and the music. Yeah. Well, and it, you could tell it spoke to you. Mm-hmm. It, it had that. That's and funny thing, I haven't told this story in a while, but um, uh, at some point I wound up signing White Zombie, his first band, only band, to Geffen Records. And we make this record that we all love. And uh, so Geffen is starting to promote it. And I am letting everybody know at Geffen they're going to be one of the biggest bands ever and blah, 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 mouthing off to everybody. <laughs> at some point, the record stalled selling at 180,000 units. I'm in a panic right now. People are looking at me like, really? And what do you got next? And luck would have it, there was a little show on MTV called Beavis and Butthead. Beavis and Butthead decide that White Zombie is their favorite band. This, this first album, uh, La Sexorcista, is brilliant. And they have a song called Thunder Kiss 65. Now, uh, this is the beginning, well, not the beginning so much, maybe we're 10 years into MTV now, but they decide that White Zombie is their favorite band. They played that video morning, noon, and night for weeks on end, and that catapulted record sales. And one night at Roseland, all of us are backstage, everybody in Pantera and Anthrax and White Zombie, and some odd little guy walks in and we're like, who is this person? And I said, oh, hi, I'm Michael Olago. Can I help you? He said, I'm Mike Judge, the creator of Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> you never saw so many grown-up people. Can you sign my hand? Can you sign this napkin? Can you draw Beavis and Butthead here so I can get it tattooed tomorrow? It was really like, um, it was so much fun. Everybody behaved like they were children. But that's, in this case, yeah. it was an out-of-the-blue marketing experience that we didn't know we were about to have, yeah. that these two little crazy creatures <laughs> decided that they loved White Zombie. And that really helped spike sales into the millions. Wow. So thank God for Beavis and Butthead, or else we wouldn't even be well, talking about White well, Zombie. Another, another great example of not knowing where your success is going to come from. Right, and yeah. a, a marketing tool we didn't even know Existed. would exist for us, sure. right. but it did. Yeah, and there's tons of that still out there. Yes, of course. In yeah. many different ways. Yes. Um, I did want to ask you about another form of music that you did. So you mentioned Tracy Chapman, but then you decided at one point, I think it was when you were with Geffen, that you wanted to work with Nina Simone. Mm, yeah. Uh, I was at, um, at Electra. Um, I had just gotten out of rehab. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I don't know if any of you know about Nina Simone, but if you don't know about her, she's an extraordinary person to look up for many, many reasons. Oh, if you ask me... She was the greatest living artist on earth. I mean, that's extreme, but that's just for me. She was, uh, you know, a black artist, part of the civil rights movement in the 60s, marched with Malcolm X and Dr. King and all these uh, militants back in the day for civil rights. Uh, She even wrote a song back then when Dr. King was killed called Mississippi Goddamn. And she'll always tell you, and I mean every word of it. And this was a person who mostly didn't write their own material. She sang songs by George Harrison from the Beatles, Here Comes the Sun. She used to sing uh, tunes by Bob Dylan, just like Tom Thumb's blues. There was a, a French writer she loved named Jacques Brel, who she reinterpreted a song called Nimekitapa into English, and I believe it's called If You Go Away. 
So she was this person that if you heard her sing a song, you would if you just didn't know, you would think, wow, did she write this song? Because yeah. she was a singer song she was a singer who was this great interpreter. She knew how to get into the heart of the matter of a song and put it out there. And you know, she always wowed people. She was really one of those people that she could just come out on stage and there'd be a 15 minute standing room applause because people knew what they were about to hear. <laughs> and it was always something, whether she stopped yeah. the show in the middle and said, sit down, stop talking, I'm not done yet. <laughs> and then scared the shit out of people. People would just be sitting there. Or, you know, it was just one of those magical experiences. And so I, only, I, I just saw, she hadn't made records for 15 years. Yeah. Nobody at Electra wanted me to sign her. <laughs> uh, everyone says she's washed up. But I had such love and respect for her and the music that I didn't want her to go out being that kind of uh, washed up person that people thought. Yeah. So uh, she was a pain in my ass. <laughs> I loved every waking moment of it. We egged each other on. And I made a beautiful recording with her. We modeled it after two records we both loved. The very last Billie Holiday record called Lady in Satin mm -hmm. that uh, she, Billie Holiday made with the Ray Ellis Orchestra. And a very odd record for Frank Sinatra called A Man Alone. Words and Music by Rod McEwen. Rod McEwen was a gay poet in the 60s and 70s. And you know, you usually don't associate Frank Sinatra <laughs> and gay poet. <laughs> gay poet. <laughs> but Frank had such reverence for Rod's material right. that his whole record is Words and Music by Rod McEwen. So Nina and I loved both those records and we decided to just kind of mash them together and we made a record called A Single Woman. Andre Fisher, producer at the time, he was married to Natalie Cole, but he also played drums in Chaka Khan's band oh, Rufus. Yeah, yeah. He produced the album for us with a 50-piece orchestra and it's a very different record for Nina Simone, but it's very beautiful. She didn't have that fire in her from the 60s anymore. We had both lost our dads, so we knew we wanted to make a record about love and loneliness and loss, and that's exactly what we did. And we made this beautiful record called A Single Woman. And um, it came out in 1993. She never recorded another record again. And in 2003, she passed away. Yeah. But, you know, if you don't know anything about her and you think you may not like, I don't know, singer-songwriters or whatever, you just kind of, as lovers of just music in general, you owe it to yourself just to click on Absolutely. her for like four minutes. and. I promise you will be wowed yes. by just that charisma thing, that it factor. And she told you like it was. She was no nonsense. She could rip your head off if she didn't <laughs> like you. One night I took her out for, one afternoon I took her out for lunch in the, um, the CBS building. We were sitting down and there were executives everywhere. The waiter comes over and he goes, can I help you guys? <laughs> she grabbed him by his, the scruff of his shirt. She says, do I look like a fucking guy to you, man? <laughs> and the kid, I don't know if he was going to like wet his pants or what. And he knew who she was. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry, Miss Simone. And I was waiting for her to still let him go. And she just like kind of threw him. And I was sitting there mortified. I was still drinking then. I needed a drink at lunch. And um, I mean, you just never knew with her like wow. what was gonna happen. 
one night at the Village Gate, a small club on Bleecker Street, very infamous night, jazz nightclub since the 60s. Some uh, young man yelled out, can you do Baltimore? It's a Randy Newman song, uh, and that was the title track of the record that she had coming out. She said, my dear, we don't do Baltimore. I made this record for CTI, that's Creed Taylor's label. He gave me $10,000, and he never gave me a dime again. So if I see Creed Taylor, I'm going to put an axe in his head. <laughs> and you know what? She meant it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She was wild. She was wild. It's like one day I'm in my office. I mean, I can go on for Nina Simone till <laughs> 4 o'clock when you all have to leave, but I won't. So I'm reading the post one morning, and it said Diva's House on Fire. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a good one. <laughs> so I called, and I said uh, to the housekeeper, I said, hey, Juanita, it's Michael Alago. What's this I hear about a fire? She said, oh, Miss Simone, don't want to talk to you. You started the fire. I said, oh, really? You're in the south of France. I'm in New York City, and I started the fire. She said, well, two things. She said to tell you, she's not a white man. She's not a white businessman. Stop sending her faxes. I said, well, why don't you tell her I sent her the fax because I was going to give her the rest of her artist's advance. She was on the phone already. I didn't even know it. And I was, she was like, oh, honey, how you doing? I said, wait a minute. Have you been on the phone this whole time? You know, she was like, like, she was like the devil sometimes, <laughs> but I loved her. I mean, that was like the that was like the drama that I went through with her oh, all the time. Man. I instigated it. I loved it. She was my all-time favorite artist ever. Um, when she passed away, it mortified me. I couldn't listen to her music for about a year, and then one day I just thought, well, you know what? You love this artist so much start filling the air with her music again. Start telling people about her. Don't let it go because physically she's not here. Right, you know, right. like I said, she was one of the greatest artists ever. Recently, Bob Dylan got an award from Music Cares and he was listing a whole bunch of thank yous. And at some point he said, I have to thank Nina Simone who would even consider doing one of my songs. That's Bob Dylan thanking Another artist, which wow. is probably, pro I, I can't say for sure, but probably rare that he would <laughs> say something Absolutely. like that. Yeah. And, you know, she had that same respect for him. That's why she covered his material. I mean, she was extraordinary, one of a kind. Uh, she made a record called Nina's Choice. That's real good. She did a record all, all on the music of Duke Ellington called Nina Sings Ellington. I mean, there's so much out there that's really great on Nina Simone. Now I'll shut up about Nina and we can move on. But like I said, I really could go on for the oh, entire hour. Yeah, but I won't. That's, that's yeah, she was the greatest ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and yeah, it's, yeah. it's impossible to listen to you tell those stories and not go, this is a man who loves music. Oh, yo, no, yeah, I love this music. This is a man who Always loves music. Always and forever. Music. Yes. Yeah. And that's where this all started from for you. Yes. Is just absolutely loving music, not to get famous, not to get the accolades. No, not I knew to nothing have about, a movie fame. Made about you, nope, not to, none of that. Although all that's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. I support you in that full. Good. <laughs> but so right around that time, from listening to you talk earlier, that was sort of pretty much right after that. You kind of got out. I was active as an A&R person from 1983 to almost 2005. So I guess that's 22, 23 years. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I had enough. And to, I, did, I really did do my job real good. I was good. Yeah. I was a hard worker. And I saw in 2005 
um, record sales were declining. Places like, uh, there was talk about places like Tower Records and Virgin Megastores on the brink of uh, collapse, all closing down. And I thought, you know what? I did it. And uh, I quit my job one day in the summer, went to the Cape, rode a bike, came back home in September, and said, well, go ahead. well what are you going to do now? And I decided to take pictures. Um, I shot portraits of men, um, had three books out. And at some point in 2009 and 2010, Cindy Lauper called me and she said she wanted to make a dance record. And uh, this is a woman who already has sold 50 million records and I was the last person she needed to call because at some point she knew I was a drug addict and an alcoholic. And she said to me, I heard you stop drinking. I was furious. Who the fuck told you I drank? Well, everybody in the industry knew I drank. But I got sober. And that was the best thing I ever did in my life. So when she called with her manager and they said, uh, we need help, um, I said, great, I want to work with you. And it's a privilege, you know. So we made a dance record called Bring You to the Brink. We worked with a lot of Swedish DJs and producers and European people. It did okay. In 2010, she called me back and she said, um, I want to make a blues record. And if you know anything about Cindy Lauper at all, she's not just girls just want to have fun. She has challenged herself for 30 years in making all different types of records. So we decided we were going to go down to Memphis and make a blues album. And we sat in her kitchen for months and months eating Chinese food, getting fat. I was getting fat. She wasn't getting fat. She always looked like a million dollars. Um, and we listened to archives of blues recordings for months until we narrowed it down to maybe 25 songs. Then we narrowed it down to 10 or 12. That would come from a woman's point of view. And we went down to Memphis and we soaked up the vibe of Memphis. We went to Graceland. We went to the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was killed. We went to the Civil Rights Museum and we just soaked it all up. And we made an extraordinary record. And uh, by the time it was done and we delivered it, everyone loved it. It did okay. It did quite well. And it also got nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Contemporary Blues Album. It didn't win the award, but it, what it signaled to us is that with hard work, you get recognized by your peers and your audience. And that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. How well, was that? That's that amazing. Was phenomenal. Good. Actually, One of the goodness. things that I love about, uh, Cindy tells a story in, in the movie where, and it's, it goes back to the authenticity thing again, that she talks about one of the things she loved about working with you was your honesty about helping her to stay on track as an artist, as who she was authentically. And, and that you, you know, at one point just say to her flat out, you know, look, that doesn't even sound like anybody could do that. That's not, that's not you. It doesn't sound like you. Yes, I think we were talking about one or two specific songs that, you know, almost sound generic, and it could have been anyone. Right. Yes. And that most certainly was not who Cindy Lauper no. was. Yeah, right. She always had a distinct yeah. voice, yeah. style, yeah. songs from True Colors to Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Yeah to when she covered uh, Money Changes Everything. Yeah, yeah. So telling the truth means just pushing the artist so that they, he or she or they would work that much harder. Yeah. And, you know, in the end, she was grateful for that. Yeah. So. Well, and that comes from a person who is always authentic themselves. Absolutely. And, uh, and that's what makes a difference. So mm -hmm. whether it's music or the photographs that you take mm -hmm. uh, that are 
that speak about how you view the world. Mm -hmm. You are a true American prize for us, and and thank you for giving us your time. Oh, well, thank you your, so much. And your Absolutely. inspiration that you've given us for decades. Oh, good. Well, and, I appreciate that. And well, I want to thank you for being on the show. Cool. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks so much. All yeah. right. Michael yeah. Lago. We can Michael all clap again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Go watch the movie. God, and, and probably it's, it's so it like the movie. If you watch the movie right after you watch this, you'll be like, "Yep, I know that guy. I know that guy." That's, did you hear him? He was on the podcast. Do you guys hear him? <laughs> and the, as 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 we promised you guys, we're going to continue doing this, pulling back the curtain. That's right on the industry. Yep. So you it's get another to know layer. What's going it's on? Another layer. And it's not those stories that you just heard here. Those are all the real stories. That's the real story. That's not like the movie story. No, it's not the movie story. That's it's not, not the that almost you heard it from a, her friend who heard it from a friend who heard, heard it from, from another friend. who heard it from an Ario Speedwagon song. <laughs> that, that's that's no, exactly. It's not it's not those are real that's the deal. Real stuff. That was real stuff, real information about the industry. Exactly. And real inspiration. And real inspiration. Authentic. Ah. Uh, authenticity. Man. The man could not be any more authentic Tell if me he tried. It. It, well, and, and, and when you see the movie, you will see that he was the same person from the minute he was leaving the house at 14. Exactly, that's exactly right. <laughs> until the guy you just heard talking, that is who he is. He has always been that way. It's one of the, in my opinion, it's it's the biggest key to his success. Yeah, being real, being authentic, being yeah. 100%. Absolutely. So... Go so, do some of that today. Go do some of that today. Go be you. Go, go be 100%. You. Figure out who you are and go do that. Exactly. All in. And remember, you got this. We got your back. <laughs> <laughs>